Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Hey, everybody. Uh, we recorded this before the news that the Dune sequel had been greenlit came out. So uh, any references that you hear in this to, uh, oh, I wonder if we get a Dune sequel. Just ignore that. We're getting a Dune sequel. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> I must not fear spoilers. Spoilers of the mind killer. Spoilers of the little death that bring total liberation. I will face my fear. Hey, here's a warning. There's going to be spoilers in this for Dune. There's going to be spoilers in this for the Dune movie, for the Dune books. There's going to be spoilers from the Dune books that can potentially spoil sequels to the Dune movie. So, you know what it is. If you don't want to get spoiled, please check out now. Hello, my name is Jason Concepcion. Sorry to go voice. Welcome to episode 9 of X-Ray Vision, the Crooked Podcast, where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. Today on uh, Previously On, we're just going to be going straight into Dune. I'll be recapping it uh, and talking about some of the box office numbers. Uh, Then in a, a very special airlock, I'll be joined by the wonderful hosts of the Dune Podcast, Jason Goldman and H., uh, and then in the Omnibus, we'll be talking about the origins of space empires and the relationship between Dune and the iconic sci-fi series that started the whole space empire thing, Isaac Asimov's Foundation. And then in the end game, we will be joined by the wonderful Shea Serrano to talk about his new book, Hip Hop and Other Things, and to resuscitate our classic cafeteria table segment from the Connect podcast. Can't wait. First, let's recap Dune. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. What's to become of our world? This is the one we've uh, I've been waiting for. I've been waiting for this since I read Dune for the first time in high school. At the time I was reading mostly comic books and Stephen King. And then I read Ender's Game and I was like, oh, my God, I love sci-fi. I want more sci-fi. What's up with sci-fi? And the very first thing someone recommended to me was Dune. And I read Dune and I absolutely loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. I read it so many times since. And super, super excited for the release of Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of Dune, this coming on the heels of, you know, the rather notable David Lynch version, which is super weird, has its charms. I like it. 
but it also kind of doesn't super work as a movie. And they made a lot of like really, really big changes to the story that I didn't love. So let's talk about Danny Villeneuve's very loyal adaptation of Dune. We open on a dream. Paul's visions from deep space. We hear the voice of Cheney, who uh, will be Paul's love interest. And we hear her describing her love of her planet, Arrakis. My planet, Arrakis, is so beautiful when the sun is low. Arrakis is the lone source of the spice melange in the galaxy. And that is the most valuable, most important substance in the galaxy. We see a Harkonnen spice harvester bringing in spice, guarded by Harkonnen troops. We see a raiding party of Fremen, the indigenous people of Arrakis, led by Cheney. We see them strike, and the Harkonnen counterattack sends them fleeing back into the desert rocks. At Arakeen, the colonial capital, we see Glossu, the beast Raban, played by David Bautista, the scion of House Harkonnen, at least at this point, as he oversees the Harkonnen occupation forces. And then later we see uh, the Harkonnens leaving Arrakis on the order of the Padisha Emperor of the Galaxy, Shaddam IV. We go to Caladan, home of House Atreides. The year is uh, 10191 AG, after the Spacing Guild. So that means after the formation of the Spacing Guild, the, uh, the group that is solely responsible for ferrying human beings, other, you know, great houses, other traders and such, back and forth across the galaxy. They alone are capable of folding space. And so the foundation of the Spacing Guild is like 10,000 years into our future. So this story is taking place roughly 20,000 years in the future. We meet uh, young Paul Atreides. He is the son of Duke Leto Atreides. And his consort, Benny Gesserit's sister, Lady Jessica, who is Paul's mother, we meet them at breakfast. Lady Jessica is testing Paul's ability to wield the voice, which is one of the powers uh, a Benny Gesserit can command. He's just okay at it. He's pretty good at it. He's, give me the water. Um, and she just kind of thinks about giving him the water. I will say, really cool effect here in which you can hear multiple voices mixed in with Paul's uh, voice. Paul, of course, played by the very engaging, very charming, very talented Timothy Chalamet. And this is a uh, this is a cool reference point for some of the powers that the uh, Bene Gesserit can command. Later, the Emperor's representatives in a super cool, very epic scene flanked by members of the Imperial Court who look like space DJs and members of the Spacing Guild with their helmets, spice-filled helmets, uh, and a representative of the Bene Gesserit arrive on World on Caladan to officially present House Atreides and Duke Leto with the governorship of Arrakis. It's a big deal. Of course, Duke Leto accepts. Duncan Idaho, Jason Momoa, hey man. First of all, Duncan Idaho, any Jason Momoa character is like just a cool, rad dude. You know what I mean? And that's his range is like, I'm a cool, rad dude. I ride a motorcycle. I'm awesome. And nobody plays that character better than Jason Momoa. Duncan Idaho uh, returns from a test flight. He will be heading to Arrakis soon on a secret cool dude diplomatic mission. Paul is like, I want to go. Can I go? Uh, listen, here's my pitch. I want to go with you on a very dangerous mission to Arrakis. And he tells Duncan of his dream that he has seen Duncan dead after a violent fight. And Duncan is like, whatever, dude, don't worry. I'm fine. And also, no, you can't go. 
later, Paul makes his pitch uh, to dad that he should go to Arrakis. I'd be an asset. I speak the Fremen language. They need me over there. Duke Leto's like, hard no. No! Are you fucking crazy? The Duke then tells his son, listen, we're in a dangerous spot here. House Atreides, our influence uh, amongst the Landsrad, which is the galaxy's great houses, how they are collectively known as the Landsrad, uh, is, is very threatening to the Emperor. We're on the rise right now. The Emperor hates it. Sidebar, here's why the Emperor is so threatened by House Atreides, in case that wasn't clear. I had some friends asking me, like, what, what is the Emperor's uh, game here? So House Atreides employs Thufur Hawat, who is a mentat, the Duke's mentat. He is famed across the galaxy for his brilliance as a strategist. He is super, super, super capable, very dangerous. War Master Gurney Halleck, who the Duke saved from Harkonnen slavery, along with Weapon Master Duncan Idaho, have built the Atreides military into a force that is just a hair's breadth as good as the Emperor's shock troops, the feared Sardukar. Now, the Emperor hopes that by placing House Atreides and House Harkonnen on a path to war, he can weaken both houses and uh, keep his hands clean in the process of doing such because he doesn't want to alarm the Landsrad that it's possible that the emperor could like go out and target the great houses one by one. He doesn't want that to be known. But if he can start a war amongst the great houses, that benefits him. The Duke wants Paul at his side as he starts planning, you know, his strategy for Arrakis, his strategy for building desert power, learning what it means to lead. He doesn't want Paul going off on his own. We go to Gidi Prime, which is the home world of the brutal, ruthless, dangerous House Harkonnen. Beast Raban arrives before his uncle, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, and Raban is pretty pissed about having to leave Arrakis. He's mad about it. How could the Emperor... Take this promotion, give it to the Duke. He's very, very angry. And from this scene, which I think is also really well done, this is like some of the best exposition that you will see in a movie or television. Uh, because everything is telling us about who these characters are and what's going on. Uh, we understand from this that Raban is a vicious autocrat, but probably not the smartest Guy, more of a sledgehammer than a scalpel because uh, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen then who is sitting there like Colonel Kurtz getting steamed like a dumpling uh, then has to tell Beast Raban, okay, here's what's going on, you fucking idiot. When is a gift not a gift? We go to Kaladin. Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Moheim, the Imperial Truthsayer arrives. She is Lady Jessica's former teacher. She arrives in the dead of night, so clearly this is not an official trip. She wants to examine Paul and learn more about these dreams that he's been having. Clearly, uh, Lady Jessica has been informing her former teacher about Paul. Dr. Yue, the house physician, tells Paul, hey, here's what's going on, man. The Bene Gesserit have their own agenda, and so they want to see if you mean anything to that agenda. What that agenda is, is this. For centuries, for thousands of years, generations, the Bene Gesserit have been running a project of selective breeding amongst the great houses through which they hope to bring about the birth of the Kwisatz Haderach. More about who that person is later. And they think that might be Paul. 
this is a sort of a mild disaster for the Bene Gesserit because it really shouldn't be Paul. Jessica was supposed to give Duke Leto a daughter who would then go on to become the mother of the Kwisatz Haderach. But uh, Jessica fell whole ass in love with that little cutie Duke Leto played by Oscar Isaacs. And you get it, right? And so she wanted to make her man happy. And the one thing he really wanted and in fact needed was a son. And so she gave that to him. The Bene Gesserits have complete command of their physiology. They are able to do things such as that, which like decide the sex of of the child that they're going to bear. Rev Moheim, Tess Paul, and thanks to Jessica's training and the fact that he is, spoiler, is the KH, he passes. He then tells uh, Rev Mo about his dreams, and later, uh, that's the reverend uh, mother. (laughs) The reverend mother I'm calling Rev Mo. Later, Jessica tells Paul about the Kwisatz Haderach. So the Kwisatz Haderach is a little complicated because of the way that entity interacts with uh, the X chromosome and the Y chromosome. But let's just say this. Uh, While the Bene Gesserit have some ability to predict the future and an ability to um, understand everything that has happened before because they can access the genetic memories of sisters that came before them, the Kwisatz Haderach can access highly accurate long-range prescience in a way that the Bene Gesserit can't. And uh, this figure was supposed to be a child of an Atreides and a Harkonnen, which would unify those two great houses who were, or, as we have learned, rivals. And that would bring about a period of peace and stability, um, which is what the Bene Gesserit want. They're out here shaping history. We go to Arrakis. House Atreides makes landfall to a really like awesome and epic bagpipe theme. We learn that the Harkonnens have left spies. They have left death traps behind them. But Thufar Hawat reports, listen, we're mopping up right now, but basically it's secure. Fremen onlookers who are watching in the distance chant, Lisan al-Gaib, Lisan al-Gaib, who is basically their legend of a messiah the speaker of truth at Paul. They they feel that he fits a lot of the details of this legendary Lisan al-Gaib. This is the result of another of the Bene Gesserit's long-running projects, the Mishnah Proctiva, which is the planting of religious legends amongst native populations across the galaxy. This is part of the way that they shape history and steer history towards the ends that they desire. Again, Paul Atreides seems to fit those signs of a messiah in the eyes of the Fremen. Later, Duke Leto and Gurney survey their new fife. Bottom line, they're pretty vulnerable out here, and the spice got to flow. That's the thing. It's so valuable. You need the spice. Everybody needs the spice. The Betty Gesserit needs the spice. The Space and Guild needs the spice. We need lots of spice. It only comes to Arrakis, and it can't stop, no matter what. Or House Atreides is in deep shit. Lady Jessica is uh, interviewing prospective domestics. She receives a Chris knife from one of these prospective uh, domestics named uh, Shadout Mapes, who is a Fremen. She gets herself hired, and it's clear that Shadout really believes, oh my God, these are the signs. The time is coming. The Lisan al-Gaib is here. This is the mother of the Lisan al-Gaib who I am talking to. I'm very emotional. 
Mapes clearly believes Paul is the one. Later, Paul saves Mapes from getting stuck by a Harkonnen hunter seeker that was clearly meant for him. Thufur Hawat is like, oh my God, Duke, I am so sorry. I missed that hunter seeker. I quit. I resign. My honor demands that I must resign. And then Duke is like, are you fucking kidding? You're a mentat. We need you right now. No, go find spies. We go back to Gidi Prime. The Revmo brings a message from the Emperor. The Emperor will send his Sardukar shock troops, the most feared, best fighting troops in the entire galaxy, to augment the Harkonnens when they launch their sneak attack on Arrakis. Here's what the Emperor needs. Basically, anything goes. Kill anybody you want. But the attack must remain top secret. The Emperor's hands must never appear dirty in this. And Lady Jessica and Paul must live. And because this message is being carried by the Reverend Mother, Benny Jesuit, truthsayer to the Emperor, she will know if they are lying. And the Baron pledges his word that no harm will come to them. This is a dangerous tactic by the Baron, uh, which his twisted mentat, Peter DeVries, tells him, hey, listen, like they'll know if you're lying. More on this later with uh, the Dune Pod boys. We go back to Arrakis. Now, listen, the Harkonnens got super rich on Arrakis, but they have left House Atreides some really tough infrastructure. Like, everything is broken down and fucked up. The Duke is like, let me go see this mining operation on which my entire fate and the fate of my house depends. He also wants to bring Liet Kynes, the Emperor's judge of the change along. This is the person who is observing the change over for the Emperor to make sure everything is above board. Although clearly she has certain orders from the Emperor and the Emperor is a biased observer who is actively trying to bring along the downfall of House Atreides. So clearly Liet Kynes is struggling with this, although she very clearly feels an affinity for House Atreides because one they're honorable, and two, maybe Paul is the least somehow gave. Anyway, Duncan comes home from mission. He has brought Stilgar, Fremen leader, with him, and he brings good news that, hey, listen, there's a lot of Fremen out here. There are a lot of them, more than previously understood, and listen, they are stealthy, they are secretive, and the Fremen are very, very skilled at war, which plays into Duke Leto's plans because he wants to ally with the Fremen. After the uh, ritual uh, spit handshake, the meeting goes pretty good. Stilgar catches some Lisa Al Gaib vibes from Paul, and he leaves. Uh, later, Dr. Keynes arrives, and she's like, holy shit, Paul, have you worn a still suit before? The, the boots. The boots with the fur. You're wearing it all correctly. Are you kidding me? Aside here. Using whatever space Google they have, you could argue that House Atreides and Paul could have just Googled, how do I wear a still suit? But of course, that's not what they did. Paul just understood how to do it. And Dr. Keen's getting those Lisa and Al Gaib vibes. They go off to watch the spice mining operation. It goes very badly because of the poor state of the equipment. The Harkonnens left, and the Duke has to then rescue these miners from an attacking, rampaging sandworm. What about the spice? The Duke is asked, damn the spice! He cares about the people, the personnel. And from this, we understand that Duke Leto is just a, a good dude, right? Yes, the spice is important. The destiny of his house, you know, rests on the spice, but he cares about human life. He cares about people. Paul, out on the sands of Arrakis, has a strong reaction to the airborne spice, and he nearly buys it. 
by the worm. Later, full-on tripping fucking balls because of the spice, Paul talking to his mother, Lady Jessica, is like, man, I am losing it because of this spice. I put on some music, put on the black light. By the way, Mom, I know you're pregnant. And Lady Jessica is like, oh, shit. We go to Seleucus Secundus. Side note here and some information about Seleucus Secundus. So to the galaxy, as far as the galaxy is concerned, Seleucus Secundus is where the emperor sends prisoners. That's the emperor's prison planet. It has like very, very strong gravity and a very, very brutal environment. And prisoners who go there mostly die, but the ones who survive get very strong. That's the official story. The unofficial story, the real story, is that this is where the emperor trains his Sardaukar. Because of that harsh environment and that stronger gravity, the troops that are trained there, one, suffer immense casualties. Like, I think it's around 50% of the troops that are trained there don't make it. They die. The ones that live become super, super capable, super strong because of that higher gravity, because of that ruthless training. They are just incredibly, incredibly brutal, the best military troops in the galaxy, and they are absolutely maniacally, fanatically loyal to the emperor, almost on a religious level. They'll do whatever the emperor says, and they are not just military shock troops, but they are very, very skilled at uh, counterintelligence, insurgency. They are very competent and feared spies. If the emperor wants to send someone undercover, right, with smugglers, say, he will send his Sardukar to go undercover and to to infiltrate different uh, groups just to find out what's going on. So on Seleucus Secundus, we see Peter DeVries, Baron Harkonnen's Twisted Mentat, making the deal with the Sardukar that the Sardukar will send, an, a, you know, a battalions of troops to support the Harkonnens. And the leader of the Sardukar says, if the emperor commands it, we will do it. We go back to Arrakis. Jessica is like, my husband, Duke Leto, I have to tell you about our son who is tripping absolute nuts on spice. And I got to tell you what's going on with him because it's a long story and it it's, involves the Benny Gesserit and Duke Leto's like, I don't want to fucking hear it, okay? I want to know one thing. Will the Benny Gesserit protect Paul? And Lady Jessica's like, what? Why are you acting so crazy? Red flag! Lady Jessica doesn't answer. She's just like, why are you being so weird? Later that night, the Harkonnens attack. Uh-oh, Dr. Yui. And here is where I will say that I'm not super thrilled that the only main Asian in the cast is the betrayer, but that's fine. Dr. Yue acting against his supposedly unbreakable conditioning, which they don't really explain in the movie, but in the book, this is not supposed to be possible, that, that a trained physician of a great house would turn against his employers. Uh, betrays House Atreides and lowers the defensive shields. The Baron's victory is essentially total. Atreides' military strength wiped out. Every city on the face of the planet hit at once. Uh, but Paul and Jessica have escaped separately. Duncan Idaho has also escaped. And others have also escaped, which will be revealed later. But other very important people have also escaped. The Duke, with his last breath, nearly takes out 
the leering, victorious Baron Harkonnen uh, using Dr. Yue's poison tooth. Paul has a spice vision of himself at the head of a Fremen army, continuing to trip balls. He sees the galaxy aflame. He sees war. Later, Dr. Kynes and Duncan find them. But before the group can escape to a Fremen siege, uh, the Sardaukar fall upon them. Duncan Idaho sacrifices himself so Jessica and Paul can escape. And Liet Kynes falls as well. Uh, elsewhere, Raban reports to the Baron that uh, Paul and Jessica are 100% dead. Definitely, they're gone. They are dead. They flew into a sandstorm. And you know what happens then. People get killed to do that. That's it. Don't worry about it. Baron Harkonnen, who is recovering from the poison tooth attack in a bath of balsamic and olive oil, is like, great. That's great news, my nephew. Now, let's take as much spice out of the planet as we can while wiping out the Fremen. Complete Fremen genocide. Go do it, the Beast Raban. And you know, because his nickname is the Beast, that that's the right guy to do a job like that. Now, aside. This is part of the Baron's plan. The Baron doesn't really want Raban to inherit House Harkonnen. He would prefer his favored nephew, Fade Rautha, who is not in this movie, but will surely appear in a sequel should a sequel be made. More on that later. Uh, the smarter Fade Rautha, he would prefer to come to power. So the Baron's plan is set the Beast Raban loose on Arrakis have him basically be absolutely hated by everyone, brutal and hated and feared. And then I bring in the pinch hitter, Fade Rautha, who is smarter and more competent, and everybody's like, wow, this guy's great. What a savior Fade Rautha is. And that's the Baron's plan. We go to the deep desert. Paul and Jessica, after the sandstorm, are walking across the desert. They come to a large outcrop, fleeing a worm. There they are met by a band of Fremen led by Stilgar. And after a brief fight in which Lady Jessica shows that she is not to be fucked with at all, she is a sister of the Bene Gesserit and she is trained in combat and she can use the voice and all this shit, Stilgar accepts them into his siege. He puts his name upon them. Unfortunately, Jamis, who Paul has had visions of, challenges Jessica to a ritual duel for leadership. And he says, Who, who's going to be this, uh, this woman's uh, champion? Stilgar's like, don't do this, Jamis. What the fuck, man? But Jamis is like, no, I'm doing it. Who is it going to be this person's champion? And Paul is like, well, I guess it's me. Guess what? Paul is good at fighting. Even though he doesn't really want to kill because he's never killed a man, he's good at it. He's been trained by some of the best. Uh, and he slays Jamis and he prevails. Also, he meets Cheney, who he has been dreaming about. And the movie ends. On to Dune Part 2. Should say I loved the little move that Paul uses to slay Jamis is like this little bullfighter move. And we understand that bullfighting is an important part of Atreides' culture. Moving on, this movie, Rotten Tomatoes, 84% uh, critics, 91% uh, fresh by audience. So that's uh, good reviews. That's great. Domestic box office so far, $40 million. International, $180 million. Worldwide, $220 million. So... Looking good, looking good as we go for a sequel. Some uh, notable reviews, Richard Brody in The New Yorker with a pan. Uh, it's surprising how cheesy the new Dune looks. <laughs> Richard Brody opens his 
opens his review with, I got to tell you, I fucking disagree. I love the epic scope of this. Uh, Bob Mondello in the NPR cinematic sandcastles is as impressive as Villeneuve's Dune don't come often. Manola Dargis, the New York Times. Uh, Villeneuve has made a serious stately opus, and while he doesn't have a pop bone in his body, he knows how to put on a show as he fans a timely argument about who gets to play the hero now. I love the movie. I think it's super weird. And I love that it maintains that super weird psychedelic teenager tripping on hallucinogens in the desert vibe that is so present in the books and is so important to the books. That said, I am super fascinated to know what people think of it, how it hits them, because it is definitely weirder and more artistic than your standard sci-fi epic popcorn movie. When we come back, I'll be joined by uh, Dune Pod guys, Jason and H. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the airlock where uh, today I'm thrilled to be joined by the Dune Pod. Dune Pod! <laughs> Boys, Jason Goldman and H. Uh, fantastic to have you on the podcast. Welcome. How are you? Thanks for cutting a new intro for us there. We're, that's just going to be what we use from now on. So. It's great to be here. Yeah, we're going to do the whole interview in starter car. Yeah. Oh, man. So this is listen, we'll get into it in a second. But I was just I rewound the starter car intro scene like on 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 Secundus uh, a million times. Seleucus yeah. Secundus, because I just was like, oh, it's cool that their speech is like weird mutated English. That is like, uh, you know, because his last line is like. If the Hebrew about it, ah, da, da, which yeah. is like almost English, kind of. Yeah, uh, I love that. 
Yeah, it's like in the future, like 20,000 years from now, like there's like a Viking race that developed an extra larynx to like be able to make those sounds. Like that was a key evolutionary advantage that people. Well, it's that it's that heavy gravity on that planet. It's like melting your it's just melting your throat vocal cords. Yeah. <laughs> also being hung stronger. upside down in, in a crucifixion field is, is not great yeah. for the For a long, I mean, for a long, long time. That's part of the training, folks. And yeah. I don't know what that does, but it makes you really good at fighting. <laughs> you guys do the Dune pod. What'd you think of the, of the movie Dune? Go ahead, Jay, you start. We like this movie, it turns out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we started the podcast when we thought the movie was coming out in 2020, and then we've been vamping for a year. <laughs> Uh, because it got pushed back due to the pandemic. So we had a lot writing on it being good because uh, the podcast would have been a bit of a downer after 18 <laughs> months. I was just like, it was I, uh, it but was it's I. great. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> but it's great. The movie's yeah. great. It's yeah. incredible. Uh, you know, this this exceeded expectations in just about every way. And part of it from the very beginning, I got excited about starting this podcast because Jason was freaking out every time Denny and Dune was being mentioned. And we knew that what he was going to bring to it was this seriousness, this grounded um, filmmaking uh, that was going to work in this epic scale. And in yeah. that respect, it's it's been perfect. Yeah, the epicness of it is... So important. Listen, the Lynch version was also epic in its way, obviously, with a 1980s special effects. Yep. So it looks super weird now, but they definitely went for the epic scale. But this really does it in a way that recalls to me, you know, like Lawrence of Arabia or The Searchers or like a great Western where it's just characters dwarfed by the landscape, by the immense machinery they're around. And Villeneuve does this really cool thing with like, with focus where it's almost like he crops in and zooms in almost with characters falling out of frame because it's almost like the screen can't take in all the stuff that is happening there. It's a really cool effect. I, I was I was blown away by it. I think it's I love that it maintains the weirdness of the book. How do you think people who aren't Dune heads will be hit by this movie? I mean, that's been the coolest thing about the movie finally coming out is that it has created a cultural moment of people vibing with the movie who clearly haven't read the book, who are not, you know, sort of in the bag for Dune. Uh, and, and and I think what folks take away from it, like, and we have folks in our lives who are in that camp, uh, is just the, there's like, oh, there's a whole world here to explore. Yeah. Like, there's something new and fresh here that I want to see more stories from. And so the number of people who haven't read the book and who are now hungry for part two, because they're like, I just want to hear more of this right now is really encouraging. I gauged it off a neighbor of mine who had no experience whatsoever. And she was just like, this is incredible. It was so, we, we saw it in IMAX. And she's like, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing on screen. And I got everything about there's like a prophetic thing and a, and a messiah situation that doesn't sound real good. She's like, I was a little confused by the shields, but that other than that. sound real good. Oh. So I'll take that. I'll take getting the prophetic but missing the shield, you know, blue versus red. Like, that's fine. Uh, yeah. Let's come back to the shields because that was one of the yes. first things that I DM'd to uh, to Jason after seeing <laughs> yeah. the film. We can get to that small nitpick there. What what did, what's your relationship to this to this story? Where did it find you in your lives? Uh, you know, how did you first encounter it? Well, 
My my brother turned me on to Dune when I was 11 years old. This was back in the early 80s. And I, as a young kid, I took a trip to California and I took Dune with me um, on the plane. And I read the first three books many times, saw the Lynch film in the theater where they actually yes. had a glossary term sheet that they handed yeah. out to <laughs> yeah. crazy. Um but so I was like, I've been a fan my, my whole life. Although I strangely skipped both <laughs> sci-fi miniseries um, until this year. Um, Get out of my mind! <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's that's what spoke to H as a young child. He, wanted, <laughs> he, he felt that there was someone in his mind. Yeah. He just needed to find the language to get no, it No, sim- similar to Denny, I was very much seduced by the power of Paul and the idea mm. of a young uh, you know, a teenager that was able to exercise such control and then influence out in the world that was very seductive. And I think, you know, when we talk to folks who have a history with Dune, there's there's actually, it's usually a common story where it kind of is like sort of like joy division for precocious young nerds. Like at age right. 13, like an older brother turns you on to this and is like, hey, right. man, you want to have your mind blown? This has got worms in it. And like, you know, it, it, it just it's it, it's and like there's just something about it's the boy goes on a journey story, but it's just much weirder than, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia or whatever your analogs were before then. Yeah, for me, I think, you know, I found it in high school. And so for me, it was like uh, there's something about the revelation that parents have these secret lives and these secret ambitions mm. and these, uh, you know, things that they have planned out that they are acting on lives before you came into their life and that those can often be quite complicated. Um, That part of it, that like emotional register, uh, I found really compelling. And I loved all the planning and all the strategy and the way that people were all plotting against each other all the time. And, and, you know, in the, in the context of high school life, that felt like really present. Um, So, I was absolutely transfixed by the first book, which I think is the most tropey of the books. Certainly, uh-huh. like, you know, the hero's journey, the whole thing, that is there. That is the path that Paul is on. This book series subverts itself in some pretty, pretty <laughs> yeah. dramatic ways, yeah. which I don't yeah. know how much we want to uh, talk about right now. I, You know, there's a spoiler warning at the top of this. But suffice to say, Frank Herbert was very, very distrustful of power. Mm -hmm. And people who get power in this world don't become good people. (laughs) there. And and so how do you think, should we get the sequels? And I'm very hopeful that I think we will get them. How far do you think we can go down that path of actually power is bad and let's subvert every expectation you have about this sweeping story about a boy who rises to prominence in the galaxy? I think you nail like the really interesting thing about it, which is that Dune in 1965 in many ways is both Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones. It's both like the treasure trove of tropes that trickle down through the history of science fiction thereafter. But then it is also the subversion of the genre and the subversion of those tropes in one story. Uh, And Herbert definitely believed that it's not that power corrupts, but that power attracts the corruptible. Right. Uh, And so his project really is a a warning about heroes. And there's this line in a book about how no more terrible fate could befall your people than to fall in the hands of a hero. Uh, And we asked, we asked Villeneuve about this. This was our question. It was like, are you in for this? Because this seems, this seems (laughs) weird. Uh, Like, this seems like a tough story to sell. And 
he seems super down. Like he 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 really wants to make part two, and he's talked about making Messiah, which would be the book after Dune, um, as a trilogy, which is very much this trajectory of yep. a person who's attracted to power being inherently corruptible. I think it's interesting when um, when we talked to Tim O'Reilly last year. Um, one of the things that when he interviewed Frank when he was writing the book on him, Frank called out that when he read Foundation. And he saw the mule, he was like, well, this is interesting. What if the mule was the hero of the story instead of the villain of the story? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is, I'll talk about this in my omnibus uh, segment later, but I think that one way to think about Dune is a conversation between Frank Herbert and Isomov. I think that Dune is, is in a lot of ways a rebuttal and a criticism of foundations depiction of imperial power throughout the galaxy and what that would, right. what that would mean. Um, let's talk about the shields. I think that <laughs> if I have a nitpick, if I have a nitpick about this movie and I loved everything, I love the, the casting I think is impeccable. Incredible. I, 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 the performances are unbelievable. I think Timothy Chalamet, I had an argument, a big argument with a friend about like, Oh, Chalamet. He's just like cute. He's not good. I'm like, he's a, fucking great actor like he's really good when he has the hand in the box in the pain box and he first gets that first tickle of pain yeah. he does this little smirk like mm-hmm. oh i see what you're doing you're mm-hmm. gonna make me feel pain in my hand now and that's the kind of shit that he could do that nobody else can really do these little like mm. looks and like where you you understand that this is a child of wealth above mm. all else like yes he is a, an innately good kid who loves his family but like he's got that little imperiousness to him too and he just kills it i loved everything except the shields okay so in the books <laughs> shield fighting is super important so people are like uh you know a lot of people come up to me like okay so this is like twenty thousand years in the future where are the guns where are the laser beams where's all the shit shield fighting has changed the way people fight there's also a wide ban on you know atomic weapons but the shields stop everything that comes in at pace. You have to move in very slowly with a blade in order to penetrate into the shield. And this is important because this colors the way Paul duels even without the shield, which comes in is important later because he's able to see, oh, this is a person who I'm fighting a person who's used to fighting with shields. Therefore, the reaction time is different. I didn't love the way that it was. I, you listen, the red and blue to let you know, okay, blue repelled by the shield, red, it gets in there. Fine, that's good. That was necessary. But at the same time, like when uh, Duncan Idaho is going apeshit on on the Sardar car, he's just like slashing them and they just die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's some where he's like, like he hits and it's there's yeah. a blue flash, but then he right. keeps the blade and then drags it, um, and then you get a red flash. So I, I think there is some that they they did. Jason and I were calling out for us the bigger challenges in the larger scenes, like where yeah. you had the amazing 300 style scene with the Atreides oh, on the steps. That. Atreides, once- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and but once they collide. And I, we actually sampled it for for the episode. Like all you can hear is shield smashing, <laughs> and you can't really yeah. tell what's going on. Yeah. And then the duel at the end without shields is clearly the best fight in the movie because you can yeah. see what's going on. So I think I think that's ultimately what proves your point is that the visual effect of the shield, while like conceptually cool, uh, it obscures the action in a way that doesn't really enhance what's going on, uh, but is a necessary plot point 
for them to figure uh, out some way to do. Did you catch um did you catch Paul's finishing move on on Jamis was like a little bullfighter swirl. Yeah. I yeah, absolutely bull- love that. Uh, so I the, didn't catch that. That's great. That's that's amazing. a pretty good that I the bullfighting, which is wow. in the book, like that the grandfather dies in a bullfight is like yes. sort of a one line thing. And they really <laughs> went with it in the movie. I love like, that. It's all about bulls. <laughs> yeah, it's all about listen, the, we're we're Scottish kind of with the bagpipes, yeah. but also uh we've got Spanish. this bullfighting thing. Very yeah. important. Yeah. <laughs> um another musical just jumping around another musical cue that I really enjoyed with the depiction of, of the Harkonnens as uh, Baron Harkonnen is lording in his victory is like mm-hmm. just enjoying it. Uh, we get this very Russian national anthem kind of swelling uh, mm-hmm. Harkonnen theme, mm-hmm. uh, which to me seems like uh, a reference to the fact that Frank Herbert, notably, not a fan of the Soviet Union. No. He, right. he, he <laughs> right. modeled these characters after the Soviets. Yeah. Uh, tell us about the They're Harkonnens. brutal! <laughs> They're brutal! <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, so it's, yeah, I mean, the Baron Harkonnen's first name is Vladimir, which is kind of, right. is a bit of a clue. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, so Frank Herbert's politics was, you know, he was, uh, he really didn't like Kennedy. Was really worried about JFK uh, being such a charismatic leader and what that we would call mean him for a libertarian now, power. wouldn't we? What's that? We'd call him a libertarian now. Do you yeah. think? He'd be way into the coins. He'd oh. be way. He'd be way. He'd have his own. He'd, he'd have spice <laughs> coin for coin. sure. Spice yeah, coin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For a hundred percent, but would really was isn't in later books has a lot to say about taxation as theft. Notably, yeah. after he had made a lot of money, he really came out against taxation. <laughs> right, he had right. his house in he had his house on Maui and was like, you know what's you know what the ultimate evil in the galaxy is? Yeah. Taxes. <laughs> Princess Princess Irulan, dispatch on taxes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Snipes manifesto. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it was. Uh, it, he 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 had like he really didn't believe in communism for sure that he didn't believe in technocrats either he didn't believe in any sort of bureaucracy where people could uh you know not have a direct say in what happened to them the sort of the government that he believes in ultimately is direct juries where like you know people just vote directly on what laws they think should exist which is a terrible idea Um, but that's what he that's what he was going for I had a a friend of mine be like, wait a second. So what is the emperor wants the Atreides out of the way, but also gave them like a really cool planet. Fellas, talk people through exactly what the emperor's, what the emperor is seeing like on the strategy table. And so what the emperor's uh, larger plan is here. Well, uh, uh, sort of foundationally, you have this notion of the Lanzarad, which is the collection of the great houses. And they are also shareholders in the sort of financial structure of the Imperium. And the emperor controls like 42% or 48% or something like that. Um, And so the concept is he's always trying to maintain this balance of financial power um, to keep the different houses in line. And so Leto calls out that the the great houses look to us for leadership. Um, And if we can do this, we'll become more powerful than ever. So he is a little thirsty for for power um, in the midst of this. He's not just there to to like hang out with the Fremen. Right. Uh, I I love the Fremen. I love the desert. I'm just like a nice guy. Yeah, Yeah. it's great. (laughs) Want to meet that little mouse? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. 
So it is a little bit more complicated, but essentially this was the the emperor's uh, notion of pitting the Atreides and the Harkonnens against each other and ultimately damaging both of them. Um, it just didn't turn out quite the way they expected. <laughs> I, I It's interesting to me when uh, when – Baron Arkanen is able to say, yeah, oh, yeah, uh, Lady Jessica and Paul, they're going to be – don't worry about it. A hundred percent fine. <laughs> I guarantee it. Right. <laughs> now, listen, you could pick any sci-fi story. But wouldn't wouldn't the truth sayer be like, that's a lie? Yeah, well, the, the funny thing about that is like <laughs> there's this concept like that people don't want to face a truth sayer. So they they throw them out in the desert. Right. And they don't kill them, which is based which is based on the belief that the truth sayer is only going to ask the question, like, did you directly kill this person? Right. They say no. And there are no follow ups. There's no there's no second question whatsoever. Like, Everything. Well, when was the last time here? when was the last time you saw them? Like, you know, were they were they in good health the last time you saw them? Did you give them a ride to somewhere chill? No, no. <laughs> follow-up questions asked by the truth sayer. So the Harkonnens are, uh, as Gurney Halleck tells us, they're brutal. And I actually love that line reading. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean... Because, listen, there's not enough time for the backstory of Gurney Halleck, but he has experience with them, as he says there, and as you can tell by the emotion in his voice. Tell, tell, the, tell the audience what it is. Why is Bernie so fired up about these Harkonnens? So as, as is the case with most of the Atreides who are uh, like who are loyal to the family, uh, that's, whether that's Gurney or Duncan or uh, Dr. Yui even, they've suffered in some ways at the hands of the Harkonnens. And Gurney's family in particular uh, was killed by Harkonnens, and he has a scar on his face uh, that was given to him by the Beast Robin. You see in the opening prologue the Beast carrying this ink vine whip, and that whip was used to scar uh, gurney in a time before the beginning of the of the story in the movie and you don't get a showdown between gurney and uh and raban in the book um and i think this is maybe a good time to talk about like denny has made a number of changes from the book to the movie and yes, almost changed it i've, I've adapted it to the screen it's not exactly as the book is magnifique <laughs> <laughs> but almost every one of them is amazing. Like the idea of instead of having this boring Irulan intro, you have Chani, you know, giving it from the Fremen perspective and anchoring it right that. there. It's just like super smart. Yeah, I like the epigram openings, uh, chapter uh, openings in each in the book. I think are really cool. Uh, Lynch tried to adapt those uh, mm. and they didn't really work. It mm -mm. pretty much killed the momentum. And I think I love that they are not in this. Um Let's talk about uh, – let's give uh, the people kind of like a context on some who, who these figures are and what they mean to the galaxy. So Thufur Hawat and Peter DeVries, the uh, Mentats that, that work for House Atreides and House Harkonnen respectively, who are they? What is a Mentat? And Peter in particular we don't get a lot of time with, RIP yeah. to him. Uh, but uh, tell us who these people are and, and, and what their importance is. So 10,000 years before the events of the movie, uh, there was an event called the Butlerian Jihad in which uh, an out-of-control artificial intelligence threatened the continued existence of humankind. And the humans won, and this is what established the reign of the Padishah Emperor and the Carino family. Uh, but 
they decided to never again make that mistake and banned all thinking machines. So there are no computers in the world of Dune. And there's an explicit prohibition against any technology that could resemble the functioning of a human mind. Um, And so as a result, they have developed humans that are thinking computers. uh, And these are Mentats. And they go to a special training uh, from a very young age, and they learn how to do this type of computation uh, that uh, you would otherwise rely on a computer for. And so when you see the Mentats eyes roll back, that's Villeneuve's cue that they're doing, you know, some kind of teraflop (laughs) computation in in their heads. But they were pretty sidelined in this film. And the other piece that's in the book that was basically excised is that Paul has been trained as a Mentat as well. I had forgotten that until we reread it last year. And I was like, oh, holy shit. Um, So that was- He's a Mentat Benny Jesuit. So it's- He's got it all. He's 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 dual He's the chocolate and the peanut butter together. He got extra ability points at the beginning of his round. (laughs) OP. Yeah. Um, So let's- um, uh, Peter DeVries, who is the uh, the Mentat of the Harkonnens, I should add that Thufur Hawat is like famous, a famous Mentat. Like right. he is, this is one of the best, most feared, most capable, most intelligent Mentats out there. He is a huge part uh, of the success of House Atreides, the reason that the, the Landsrad looks to House Atreides is in part because of Hmm. Uh, don't be uh, don't be fooled by the parasol. He's got other right. tricks besides. <laughs> is besides is in part that. because of how good Thufur uh, is at his job, yeah. and then his his uh, mirror image is Peter Devries, who is in the books known as a twisted mentat. So what is mm. who is he? What is his deal? The, the twisted mentats. There's this notion. Uh, there's a a, ray, or a a branch called the the Benetlelax, and they are sort of like these specialists in breeding programs and these different alternate techniques of things. Um, and they have a separate program from the main mentat uh, training program where they're basically making their own mentats who are. Part of it is not just the computation, but also the sort of tapping into deeper consciousness and universal elements. Um, and so you end up with some that get broken and are willing to use their powers for bad. And that's basically, Piter's like the, the the poster child of that. He's like the ultimate twisted mentat. Yeah, the Benetilax, uh, they will bring you gifts and the gifts will be weird. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. should we talk? Should we talk weird? Which while we're talking Harkonnen, should we talk oh, the spider thing? Are you ready? Yeah, let's talk about the spider. Yeah. <laughs> so the spider is completely extra textual. There's no spider. There's no yes. spider in the book. Uh, there's the you know there's a scene in the movie in which uh, it's the Reverend Mother Peter DeVries and the Baron, and there's a spider creature in the background grubbing on some bowl of stuff, uh, and the Reverend Mother dismisses it with yeah, the get voice. That and thing. It I, I don't off. want to talk to you with a spider <laughs> with this, around that has that has human hands. Up. It has yes, human, human hands. hands. And is in fact portrayed by a human woman. The, it's cre- the performer of the spider is credited, uh, and oh, you can God. see her do this like spider dance. Uh, it's like you know they got the top spider lady available <laughs> uh, to do this. Uh, and so there's a lot of fan speculation about what this means and and why is this in there. Uh, and it should just be noted that it's possible that Denny Villeneuve has a spider fetish. He's got a whole movie. I love uh, uh, the, <laughs> the arachnids, the spider. <laughs> With all the legs, they are so sexy. Legs, incredible. <laughs> eight the eyes teeth. is unbelievable. You know. Yeah, yeah. So, so he has a movie, Enemy, with Jake Gyllenhaal, in which spiders yes. are an object <laughs> of sexual <laughs> fascination. Yes. So that just might be yes. his thing. 
the theory that we like uh, that we are that we and others have arrived at independently is that the spider is uh, either a Harkonnen or Benny Tleilax uh, yeah. body torture of someone or specifically Dr. Yui's wife, Juana, uh, because he mentions that she's being torn apart like a doll. Uh, and it's possible that they're just doing some, you know, Tusk style uh, body horror stuff, turning people into bugs and other creatures. So, yeah, and we should we should call out the Bennett's Lalax as it develops through the series. It's revealed that once someone dies, they can actually take their cells and they can regrow that person and bring them back. So perhaps Juana has been brought back as this spider human thing uh, that is crawling around there. Uh, the Golas. The Golas. Yeah, yeah. uh, and if we get there, get ready for some weird Gola action. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, Dr. Yue, and it's not really a big thing in the movie, but it is supposed to be not possible to turn uh, someone who has undergone the imperial conditioning as Dr. Wellington Yue has against their employer, against the, their house. Why was that able to be done? And tell us about that conditioning, why this is such a big deal and why this was such a blind spot for House of Trades. This is It's not supposed to be a thing that anyone can do. Yeah, so this is one of the things that's in a lot of Dune is that there's this idea of deep psychological conditioning that people can go under that makes it impossible for them to do things or creates a vulnerability for them that they can be controlled with a word. And for this special class of doctors, the Souk doctors, uh, they are trained and conditioned to not just take like a Hippocratic oath to do no harm, but are psychologically manipulated such that it is impossible for them to harm the people that they serve. And in doing so are enabled to treat people like the emperor himself. Um, Yui becomes corruptible because the Harkonnens have his wife, Juana, and his love for her and his anguish over what's happened to her, she's being tortured by them, overrides his conditioning such that he's able to be turned into a traitor. It's it's a weird concept, but it reflects two things. One, the idea that um, poison and assassination is one mm. of the most, because shields have re- made most types of warfare um, irrelevant, assassination and poison becomes really important. So the souk doctors are really critical, uh, you know, trusted servants. The second piece is just, you have Duke Leto, who is this capable and together guy, and he's, he's looking at everything, but you count on the sun rising every day and you count on your Sook doctor being trustworthy. So that just is a blind spot that it was impossible for him to be prepared for. Are there any parts of this movie that, that just stood out as something you really didn't expect and really, really enjoyed? Like what was, what was your favorite part of this movie essentially? I'll say my favorite part, and when we talked about the book in the very first episode of the podcast, we talked about the scene with Jessica and Paul in the tent um, at the end yeah. of book one as a favorite uh, moment in the entire book. For me, that whole scene of how that unfolds and the fact mm-hmm. that they don't flinch from the notion that there's scary business that is that is out there. And it's driven by Paul's initial reaction to the spice within the tent. Yeah. So you have this psychoactive aspect. But the shot of Paul and Chani in all black standing yeah. up on the ship, looking down. That's watching just like- jihad. Watching the <laughs> yeah. jihad sweep across the galaxy. Their, G- their jihad VIP viewing station. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. To me, that's the highlight. That's the highlight of the whole movie. Who is behind them on that in the ship? Because there's yeah. it's them at the at the like kind of the lip of the ramp, right? And then there's yep. like two people behind. Who are the two people behind? 
It's it's not clear. I thought one of them in the vision might have been Jameis again, yeah. uh, which which mm. I, I want to talk about a bit. But then there's this idea that's established uh, later, which is that Paul takes uh, a group of Fremen and calls them the Fedakin, and they yeah. become his death commandos. So it's probably probably some of those bros that well, are, are just on his side. Yeah, I would imagine Korba as well, who emerges as a critical uh, player yep. in, in Messiah. But this is an interesting thing, right? So what's happening right now, after we've been railing against this for the last year, and Denny um, you know, famously kind of went to war for a while with Warner Brothers, the fact that this movie is available on HBO Max right now so that yeah. we have this conversation and nerds all across the world are having this conversation, and they immediately can bring it up, and they can yeah. watch it, and they can look at it, and they can screenshot it. Like it's feeding into a cultural moment here that is, you know, bigger than we expected. Yeah. Uh, so, Jason, you're you're uh, a moment that you really enjoyed, and then let's see, yeah, let's talk about Jameis. I I love what they did with Jameis in yeah. this in this movie. Like me too. Paul Paul kills Jameis in this duel. That's like a big turning point for his character. It's the first time he kills someone, and it's a, it's this meaningful interaction, and it's a great duel. Um, but what they do with the prescient visions is you see Jameis in the visions. And I think right. this does something that the book can't do, which is sell this idea of there's multiple timelines that Paul yes. is seeing. And in some that. of them, he dies. In some of them, Jameis lives. In some of them, Jameis becomes a friend and a teacher and is the one who's going to teach him how to ride the worm and is going to impart wisdom to him. Uh, and then in the one that Paul ultimately chooses, he kills Jameis. And so that, I think, is a much more convincing portrayal of prophecy and you know, this multiverse idea of how Paul sees the future than some of the more kind of LSD laced writings of Herbert, where he's describing that kind of prescience, but it's a lot of like, you know, many sausages strung out in front of yeah. me and I picked the <laughs> yeah. sausage I want to live in. And you're just like, bro, like I, I know, I know about, I've heard enough about the sausages. Like it's not helping. A another uh, similar to that, a thing that I thought was really brilliant. And again, I think Villeneuve has done, I think he's done a great job of taking, of using small details, whether it be the sound design, the visual, whatever, to convey a larger thematic something f that exists in the book, but do it in a way that that is visceral. And one of those to me is the voice. Uh, mm, yes. I, so in the books, and this is not really explained in, in the movies, but the Bene Gesserit have access to gen the genetic memories of all the now asterisk, all the sisters who came before, everything that they know, a Bene Gesserit who is, exists in our story knows, can call upon that wisdom. And thus they're able to, with some accuracy, predict the future. Now the Kwisatz Haderach has access to the full memories and therefore can predict more. But the thing that I really liked was the way the voice modulates its, its uh, you know, it's Paul's voice, then it's the Reverend Mother's voice, then it's Jessica's voice, then mm -hmm. it's Chani's voice. voice. Yeah. Yeah, Chani's voice. Therefore, embodying that idea of genetic memory. I I absolutely thought that was a brilliant way to do it. Uh, could you explain to the to the people what the genetic memory is, how that works, and why the Kwisatz Haderach is, an, is a different kind of genetic memory yeah so the the Bene Gesserit have this ability because they ingest a huge amount of spice uh to everybody's access everybody just just, just rock spice just, non-stop <laughs> just an unbelievable amount I mean and it's not park the, spice this is good spice this, this is, is the, the good, good this is not the park spice this is the real <laughs> shit this is the the pure spice that you want 
in your helmet just yeah. <laughs> right just orbiting around your face all the time now we know yeah. what daft punk was on yeah yeah so like because of their you know dank science they're able to access these interior lives of previous sisters who have lived uh, and basically converse with them experience their memories you know there's a scene in a later book in which the reverend mother superior there's an acolyte who's not yet gone through this uh, and she's reading Tolstoy and the reverend mother is able to say is like oh he actually wrote that while he was you know at his daca like b- sitting beside a stream that's not written down anywhere that's just something I know because I've got Tolstoy inside me. Uh, and so like, there's, there's this notion of accessing prior lives, but only women can do this in the Herbert right. universe. Only, uh, only Reverend Mothers can go within and take this otherwise lethal dose of spice. And many Reverend Mothers die in trying to do this. Um, any man who has tried to do this dies. Uh, and the, there's a, the prophecy that the Queen of die. They tried, yeah. they tried to they try and they, they tried to die. Yeah. <laughs> so there's this prophecy that once one day at Quetzal's Haderach, uh, a male will come who's able to look inside uh, and access this place that the Bene Gesserit are, are unable to look into uh, and become the universe's super being. So that's what's going on uh, with these prior lives inside. Mm. Gentlemen, it has been delightful to, <laughs> to spend this time with you. Please mm. tell us, please tell the audience about Dune Pod and and what it has i gotta say some of the the vamping incredibly enjoyable um excalibur i had excalibur on vhs as a child yes i have watched that movie absolutely not (laughs) absolutely not even the rated version is fucking crazy for a kid to watch so i really enjoyed uh your pod on on excalibur and on the throck uh tell us about dune pod uh, and what what you have coming up next. Yeah, I mean, so this podcast, we started it because we wanted to focus on the films by the cast and crew. So we started with Denny with 2049 and Arrival and Sicario. We did Call Me By Your Name with Timothy Chalamet. And as we've developed, we're focusing on films that are in the same genre or that we think are important. So the first thing to know is we talk about Dune every week, but we also don't only talk about Dune. So for instance, next week we have one of the directors of House of the Dragon, the new Game of Thrones show. Hello. Greg Yatanis <laughs> is coming on to talk 12 Monkeys. And the week after that, we've got the showrunner, Ryan Condal from House of the Dragon to talk Aliens. And then 2001, the week after that. So if you like movies, if you like uh, sci-fi, um, you know, come on and, and just hear these amazing conversations that we have of really why these films are important and a lot of fun. Yeah, we've talked, we've joked about like it's sort of become uh, Gen X genre movie podcast <laughs> instead of Dune Pod, which has which has the advantage of being uh, singable to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle song. So it's you know it's. Gen X genre Next movie, movie podcast. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's our that's our new deal. <laughs> uh, once again, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Loved thank it. you yeah. so much. Thank you so much. Up next, we'll crack open the omnibus. Welcome to another chapter in the Omnibus, where lore analysis and understanding come together. This week, uh, let's talk about uh, space empires, the origin of the trope of the empire in space, and let's talk about, uh, more specifically, Frank Herbert's Dune. 
Frank Herbert's Dune, published in 1965, built on the age-old storytelling tropes of the hero's journey and the space empire framework established by Isaac Asimov's Foundation series and combined them with Herbert's own interest in ecology and psychedelia uh, to create something that uh, was both very influential in the time that it was released in the 60s uh, and is clearly, because of the recent released uh, Denis Villeneuve film, something timeless. Dune won the inaugural 1966 Nebula Award for Best Sci-Fi Novel and shared the 1966 Hugo Award for Best Novel with Roger Zelazny's This Immortal, uh, also called Call Me Conrad. Readers in the 60s and 70s uh, were absolutely primed for Dune and for the themes of ecological destruction, mind-expanding substances, and uh, charismatic revolutionary youth found in Herbert's epic story. Rachel Carson's scientific expose, Silent Spring, about the dangerous effects of uh, wanton pesticide use on the environment became a surprise hit in 1962 and, and kicked off the modern environmental movement and created the school of thought about you know, what, is, what are humanity's effects on the environment. And of course, Dune's ecological message is even more keenly felt today in a world struggling to deal with climate change, struggling and failing. In 1965, concerns about the use of LSD by the general public uh, led the Swiss pharmaceutical company Sandoz to halt production of its surely weirdest product. But by then, of course, the genie was all the way out of the bottle. Popular use of LSD or acid and other hallucinogens gave rise to the psychedelic movement of the 60s, which in turn gave that era its signature aesthetic texture, which of course is recognizable decades later. When you see tie-dye, you understand this is a reference to the 1960s. And the rise of, of global youth culture in the 60s as the baby boomers came into their maturation and, and started to flex their economic and cultural muscles placed young people at the center of a wide variety of conversations, conversations about social justice, conversations about higher education, conversations about fashion, about music, about art, about sexual mores, about drug use, and more. Dune sat astride all of these trends. Quote, word is spreading on the West Coast grapevine about an epic science fiction novel titled Dune reads the April 6th, 1969 edition of the Boston Globe's nationally syndicated column Youth Notes, alongside short paragraphs on uh, the poor reputation of the CIA amongst American youth, a two-paragraph write-up on the Peace Corps, and a profile of a then-emerging Texas singer named Janis Joplin. The review on Dune continues, quote, written by Frank Herbert, a California newspaperman, the book surpasses the work of British storyteller J.R. Tolkien as a feat of imagination. Now, you may agree or disagree on that, but I think that's quite indicative of the, the kind of hype that Dune had in the, in the late 60s and, and early 70s. One of the under-discussed aspects of Dune is the way the story acts as a mirror reflection and a kind of rebuttal to Isaac Asimov's iconic, legendary Foundation series. 
Foundation is generally credited with inventing the now familiar trope of the galactic empire, uh, the trope popularized to, to a massive degree, of course, by Star Wars. Foundation first appeared as a series of short stories running an astounding magazine, which is a sci-fi magazine of the era from 1942 to 1950. The first four stories were published together in 1951 as the single volume book Foundation, which was then followed by the sequels Foundation and Empire and Second Foundation in 1952 and 53, respectively. Set 50,000 years in the future, Foundation tells the story of the last years of humanity's galactic empire, which by the opening of the tale spans some 25 million planets. Ultimate authority over those worlds rests in the hands of the emperor who resides on Trantor, the imperial capital, but unbeknownst to the emperor, his subjects, and essentially everyone in the galaxy, the empire is crumbling and is in fact mortally wounded, already on its way out. Both Dune and Foundation are set uh, many millennia in the future. Both deal with the stagnation of a galactic empire, the restoration of civilization, the role of charismatic leader in said restoration, and both prominently feature a highly advanced system for predicting future events that fuses math, religion, and human psychology. In Foundation, the character Harry Seldon alone the most brilliant man in the galaxy, creator of the advanced mathematical predictive model known as psychohistory, realizes the dire state of the empire, just as in Dune, when the emperor sends the Atreides to the far-flung planet of Arrakis, in foundation, the emperor exiles Harry and his followers to Terminus, a barren planet on the galactic fringe. This, of course, is all to Harry's larger plan. He had planned to get exiled there, and there using science, using political maneuvering, using outright manipulation, and using semi-regular appearances as a kind of TED-talking hologram, Harry drives a multi-century project to guide the human race out of the post-imperial Dark Ages. Frank Herbert's answer to psychohistory in Dune comes in the forms of the quasi-religious sisterhood known as the Bene Gesserit, and the human computers known as Mentats. The Bene Gesserits use carefully deployed religious myths, an extensive and secretive system of genetic crossbreeding and their own enhanced abilities, particularly mind control, the ability to detect lies, and the ability to call on the collective wisdom of past Bene Gesserit sisters uh, to shape human history and bring about the birth of the Kwisatz Haderach, Dune's version of the Chosen One. Mentats, like Dunes Thufur Hawat and Peter DeVries, are human supercomputers. They provide their employers with services that, in the days before the Butlerian Jihad, would be performed by a computer, while also using their highly attenuated perceptive abilities and understanding of human uh, psychology to act as strategic advisors in military affairs, provide intelligence and counterintelligence, perform duties of diplomacy, and much more. In Foundation, Asimov imagines that placing a few unaccountable psychoanalysts at the center of immense power, as he does with Harry Seldon and the Foundation, and allowing them to steer humanity's fate according to a scientific reading of an advanced algorithm is potentially the best of all political systems. Foundation, in, in thought-provoking and very entertaining fashion, assumes that cold, emotionless, unbiased math is the best steward of humanity's destiny. 
Herbert, however, was a contrarian in all things, as uh, Jason and H discussed, I think, quite ably in our previous segment. And he philosophically decried assumptions, even his own assumptions, much of the time, perhaps because of this. Dune's sequels subvert themselves and audience expectation in many, many ways. This makes what will happen with the Dune sequels really interesting. I'm fascinated to see how some of those things end up playing out for audiences because people who are set up as heroes are undercut by this story. If you want a goldmine of science fiction material, Herbert advised, pull the assumptions out of the current bestseller list, turn those assumptions over, look at them from every angle you can imagine, tear them apart, put them back together, put your new construction on another planet or on this planet changed, and place believable human beings into the conflict thus created. In Herbert's view, any system which purports to be the system, be it psychohistory, be it religion, be it you know, republicanism, whatever, will inevitably result in inefficiency, stagnation, decline, the stymieing of human creativity. Just as Duke Leto searched to harness desert power in Arrakis, Herbert explored the idea of harnessing human power. In Dune, human beings alone perform the computations necessary to sustain a transgalactic empire. The spice melange, a powerful psychoactive narcotic, makes this possible by allowing human beings to expand and augment their minds to superhuman levels. For a sci-fi epic set many thousands of years in the future, I think it's notable that Dune is really light on the kind of like oh, wow, technology, incredible, whiz-bang, scientific, sci-fi tech that marks most sci-fi. Guild Navigators, for instance, high on spice, fold space, you know, without computer help. The most powerful space militaries in the galaxy fight with knives. And human society has essentially devolved into feudalism. Asimov hated this kind of scienceless sci-fi. In Robert Scholes and Eric S. Rabkin's 1977's uh, Science Fiction, History, Science, and Vision, Asimov is quoted as saying, there are science fiction writers who think science is a bad thing and that science fiction is a wonderful field in which to make this plain. This is part of a much more general attitude that society is a bad thing and must be destroyed before a new and better system can be evolved. This may strike youngsters today as a daring and novel notion, but when my great-grandfather was a boy, they called it nihilism. Now, Asimov doesn't name-check Herbert here or Kurt Vonnegut or Ursula K. Le Guin or Gene Wolfe. But he is surely talking about that new wave of sci-fi writers who was rising at the time. Herbert's retort to this comes in his book Heretics of Dune, the fifth book in the series, in which he writes, The holders of power in this world have not awakened to the realization that there is no single model of a society a species, or an individual. There are a variety of models to meet a variety of needs. They meet different expectations and have different goals. The aim of that force, which impels us to live, may be to produce as many different models as possible, end quote. I don't know where you come down on this, but I, I think whatever style of sci-fi you prefer, whatever depiction of galactic empire you prefer, be it Dunes, be it Foundations, be it Star Wars's, uh, it's clear that the winner of this debate is us, the audience, the fans of sci-fi who get to watch Foundation on television, Dune in the theaters, and Star Wars, wherever we come into contact with content. Up next, The Endgame. Endgame. <laughs> 
Welcome to the end game, a segment in which myself and a co-host slash guest play a game. And today that guest is New York Times multiple best-selling author, <laughs> writer of a show that has just been picked up by IMDb TV, my friend and former co-host, Shay Serrano, the man who accuses me of uh, crimes almost daily on the internet. Shay, how are you? It's so great to be here with you. I'm very happy to be back listening to your voice, introducing me like that. It makes me feel real good. Shay, today we are recording this on a Tuesday, and uh, it is a special day because it is the official release of your book, yes. Hip Hop and Other Things. Tell us about this book. Let's just talk about how awesome this book is. This is the greatest book that's ever been written. Many, <laughs> many people are saying that. Pretty much everybody. I think I've, I can't, I, every place I go, people are talking it's, about it. I went to get coffee today and people were yeah, talking about that. That When I got in my car, I turned on my radio. They were talking about it. Uh, I opened up Google. It was on the homepage of Google. It didn't even say Google anymore. It just said, this is the best book I've ever read with a picture of the book on there, hip hop and other things. And it's it's crazy the amount of good reviews we've been getting so far. Every place, every person you can think of. Something I've always wanted to ask you is how are you so good at promoting your shit? Because like <laughs> I think that people, I think that it's, I really, I'm serious. Like I think that it's, it's underrated. People don't realize one, how hard it is to talk about the stuff you're doing in a way that people are not like, okay, enough. You do it with an enthusiasm and an energy that is like so sincere and real. <laughs> well, and I am incapable of I can't get to that place a lot of times. How do you how do you do it? Let's be clear. There are a bunch of people who are like, Shay, you gotta shut the fuck up about this book already. <laughs> like a lot of like like I get it every every day on Twitter, every <sighs> single Every single day. But but mostly everybody is very nice and supportive, which is great. And I think it's probably because of what you're talking about here. It's just I'm like genuinely excited about this stuff. Yeah. You and I, we have like a similar coming up story where neither one of us expected to be where we are. We both <laughs> Not at all. we both assumed <laughs> very early on that we would just be doing manual labor jobs for our whole entire life. So every day that we don't have to fucking pick something heavy up, we're just excited and we feel great. And that's what's going on here. Well, uh, Shay, I asked you to watch the movie Dune starring one of our favorites, Oscar Isaac, mm -hmm. uh, as Duke Leto Atreides, or as, as I call him, Dilf, Dilf Leto Atreides. <laughs> um, what did you think of Dune? Did you like it? Let's talk about it. I fucking loved it. Listen, I, had, I, yeah. I never read any of the books. I didn't know, I didn't know anything yeah. about the story. Probably for three months after they started talking about this movie was getting made a couple of years ago, I thought they were talking about the movie Doom, the video game Doom. I was <laughs> like, would start, I was like, I know that I played that. I played that video game. Oh, they're remaking that yeah. movie with The Rock. That's a good idea. That's what I thought it was. I had no idea yeah. about Desert Power or anything. And then I started, you know, the pictures started coming out. The trailer started coming out. It's like I don't think this is the same thing. This is a different <laughs> this thing. Is the, wait, this is not Doom. <laughs> Where's the guns? Where are the big guns? What's going on here? So I watched it and it fucking ruled. It was so, it looked expensive, number one, which is- It looks expensive. It looks so good. It, I mean- It looks so good. It looks like a million, zillion, billion bucks on the screen. Every single, like every single frame, the people who made it, you could tell they like, 
they cared about every grain of sand and like the way that it blew the little fuck, even the little bug or whatever, the, the spy, the hunter thing that comes that is like going to stick him in his eyeball when that thing came through the, yes. like every single little piece of it. It was just so much fun. I was super into it, like all the way plugged in when it gets to the end and fucking Timothy Chalamet gets into the fight with a guy when they're like, we're going to fight to the death. I, I like I didn't I so I didn't know anything was coming, and they and she the guy of course challenges the the mom, and uh, what was it? Uh, Rebecca Ferguson? He challenged Rebecca Ferguson as yeah. the lady Jessica. I don't know anybody's name from the movie except for Paul. It's okay. Except for Paul, he's the only one that I know because they said it a hundred <laughs> yeah. times. Like, I get I get it. Um, so they like Re- uh, Rebecca Ferguson defeats um, Javier Bardem, and like she's apparently the leader now, and he's like I want to challenge her. Oh, who's going to fight for you? Who's your king? And then Paul steps forward. And I was like, let's fucking go. Come on, Timothy Chalamet. Let's go. And then they do that whole fight scene. And he keeps beating the guy and like putting the blade up to his neck. But he won't cut him. And I never. He won't do it. I'd never seen that before. And then the, the, the guy's like, is he, is he toying with him? And she says. Yeah, is he fucking with him? He's never killed a man before. And then. That, like, was, that was really oh, felt like, oh, shit. That felt like, so, so cool. That felt like really, I mean, that's a thing in the books, but on, but on the screen, it was like, oh, shit, I got to kill this yeah, guy right Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody expects me to, and they're all just going to watch. That's, I think, what makes this movie so much fun to watch is because you have, like, all of the, the like, giant spectacle of the situation is yeah. one thing. But in that moment, that one little moment, you felt the weight of this kid having to kill another human when she says that line, she gives a great look on her face. He gets knocked down and then he stands up and he's like a little bloodied on his nose or whatever. He stands up and then the fucking chant comes on in the background and you're like, oh, he's going to yeah. do it. He's gonna, And then sure enough, he, oh my God, it's so good. It was so much fun to watch. It was incredible. I want to watch it again. Uh, I have, I've watched it several times. It holds up. I really enjoyed it. Shay, I would like to now, in honor of Oscar Isaac being in this movie. Yes. I would like to uh, revitalize, resuscitate, and rejuvenate, and bring back to life uh, <laughs> a segment we did on our on our uh, podcast, The Connect. Yeah, baby. Specifically, a, a reference to the uh, to the episode. I thought this computer was my friend, in which we talked about the movies Upgrade and Ex Machina, uh, starring, of course, Oscar Isaac in in a role that is much remembered for the incredible dance that he unleashes in the middle of the movie. <laughs> and so I'd like to bring back our segment, The Cafeteria Table, in which we would take uh, a person from the movies that we selected to sit at the table and who would then be joined by people from movies that shared the theme that we had. Our theme, in this case, for our Cafeteria Table will be uh, Hot Dads. Yes. Oscar Isaac. Yes. Uh, if If he's your dad... And Rebecca Ferguson is your mom. You're like, I get it. My parents are hot. <laughs> Every time your friends would come over, they'd be like, man, your dad is like, what's going on, dude? Like, <laughs> your parents so hot. Why does your dad look like that? <laughs> Why does your dad look? Listen, if anything ever happens with your dad and, and Lady Jessica, let me know. Because <laughs> what's going on? So uh, Oscar Isaac is going to sit at, at both seats of the table. And we have 
uh, some empty seats here that now need to be filled by people that we're going to select. Uh, so it's two Oscar Isaacs, and they're chatting along. They're they're being very charming to each other, sitting at the table, and we've got these empty seats that we are now going to fill. Mm-hmm. Two empty seats each. Uh, Shay, would you like to go first? Who is sitting at your table, the hot dad table, with Oscar Isaac? Is this so? This is Oscar Isaac from Dune and Oscar Isaac from Ex Machina. They're just hanging. Perfect. Okay, they're just talking. Yeah, they're just hanging. Okay, because he was the father of the robots. So there you yes. go. Okay. All right. Well, then in that case. So I have two seats to fill, and there's a bunch of them. Oh man, so many hot dads! So, so many hot dads so many out hot there. Dads. Um, an underrated one, Jake Gyllenhaal in Southpaw. Not that great one. Not, not that great of a movie, <laughs> but you're smoking hot in it. Edward James almost in Selena. Very, that's a good one. Very sexy, like dad energy. Um, I need a can't miss. That's what I need. I'm gonna start with. Yeah, let's get what's a can't. I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna start with somebody who. You don't think of this person as a dad in your head. You forget that he's a dad. You forget <laughs> as soon as the scene is over with, with him and his son. You forget. But Denzel Washington and Training Day. Al- That's a great, Al- Al- great Alonzo. Him and Eva Mendez have a kid together. Uh, I, be- I think he has like another family somewhere. I assume he does. Yeah. They imply it in the movie. I'm a, he not a great dad, not a, but no, a hot one. not a great, an awful dad, miserable dad. <laughs> <An> awful dad. <laughs> We're gonna have a gunfight. We're gonna have a shootout, a shotgun shootout with my kid hiding in a hall closet, like that kind of dad. Not a great dad, mm-hmm. but a hot dad, a dad that could sit down at a table with Oscar Isaac and Dune and Oscar Isaac and Ex Machina and not be completely blown out of the water. That's 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 my pick right here. That's what I'm going with. That's a great one. Thank you. I, I also needed a can't miss. I was thinking, thinking, thinking. I considered Antonio Banderas from Spy Kids. Yeah, good one. Uh, which, which is, I think, you know, you can't go wrong there. But I felt it like let's do something that's a little more recent. So I went with Winston Duke from Us. Nice pick. Uh, Winston Duke. Nice pick. Uh, Black Panther and Us. Uh, best thighs in the game. I think he's like six foot six. It's a, also, that's a big like, dad. That's a big dad. <laughs> so it must be great having like a big strong dad who could just like carry you around. So I'm gonna say Winston Duke from the 2019 uh, existential horror film Us. He is a fantastic and protective and and scary when he needs to be dad in that movie. Winston Duke, Gabe Wilson. From us. He was only scary in that movie as the scary version of himself. Like the normal right. dad version was completely outgunned. Just like this is not <laughs> yeah. it's not gonna work out great for you, sir. It is not. All right, here's my next pick, my other seat that I'm gonna fill it in. And again, not a great dad in the movie. Kind of a dick. Right. Super yeah, yeah. Super not great dad in a movie, but absolutely, unquestionably, this guy, when he goes to the park with his kids or when he picks his kids up from school. All of the moms notice. Everybody notices. They're like, oh, shit, he's coming. Oh, he's here. He's here. Did you see him? Brad Pitt in Tree of Life. Give me, tr- give me oh! Tree of Life, Brad Pitt. What a, what a dick of a dad, but just smoking hot. bad dad. You're that, when you're that hot, oh, you man. can be that much of a jerk, I think. that's Remember right. when the dinosaur showed up in Tree of Life? <laughs> yeah. I don't know were what like, was going on. Were you like, what the fuck <laughs> has happened? Why is there a dinosaur <laughs> no clue what the movie's about. Uh, I did not get what that was. This is this is all I remember. 
I had at the time taken to teaching my sons how to box. We we bought the gloves, yeah. we bought the mitts. We're doing the drills in the front yard, or like at the time we lived in a little townhouse. So in the front of our townhouse, we're doing it. And mm-hmm. I was like being a little more aggressive than I needed to be. I was a young dad. I thought I needed to be like tough, tough yeah. dad. No, like this is how you do it. Like being a jerk yeah. of a dad. And then we watched Tree of Life and they have the exact same scene that they're in the front yard. And I was like, is that what I fucking, is that what I look like? Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry. I think I apologize to my sons right now. Never again. Never again. But smoking hot dad. That's mine. Great, great, great pick. Uh, again, it would be really distracting when your friends came over and your dad was Brad Pitt. My pick, I, I was, I considered, so I considered Krasinski in, um, in a quiet place. Mm-hmm. Although, again, I would argue not a great dad. Oh, terrible. Like, it should not take terrible. until your kids are like eleven years old before you tell them, "Hey, the things can't hear you in the in the waterfall." Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think that that's important information to share earlier on. Um, special, special note of respect from me for all the different ways that Krasinski puts his finger <laughs> to the side of his nose in that Very movie. creative. He does it like, <laughs> he does it like eight different ways to tell people to be quiet. I also considered Paul Rudd from Ant-Man. I thought about Paul Rudd too. Very handsome. Very handsome. A very handsome guy. Uh, ageless wonder, Paul Rudd. Uh, super charming, super fun. But I went with, uh, John Cho. Ooh. From uh, Ooh. the movie Super Hot Dad, searching. From the movie Searching, yeah. in which he's in which he is looking for his missing daughter. Uh, listen, if I'm missing, I want my dad to turn over every single rock, to look in, to cross every single river, to go into every single forest to look for me. And it would also be great if he was a great looking guy. That because I think that would help with the news coverage. Absolutely, you know, people would be like, absolutely, we got it. Hey. That hot dad is on TV yeah. <laughs> talking about where is his kid at? Uh, and John Cho, super handsome guy, super hot guy. I John Cho in search. That's a great, great pick. I love that movie. Like just I had good one. W- I only recently saw it. It was really, really, really good. I like our picks. I now, think this is a I, I like a our very picks. Good so table. I will say now he is um David in in searching, played by John Cho, is also maybe not the best dad, but he's working on it. He's thinking about it like he's he he's admitting that maybe I wasn't the best dad in, in mm-hmm. certain points of view. So I would argue maybe maybe the best actual. No, you know what? Gabe Wilson is also very good. But like one of the better fathers, certainly uh, when compared to uh, uh, Brad Pitt and Jez, Mr. O'Brien and Tree of Life and, and Alonzo from Training Day. That is our cafeteria table. It is Oscar Isaac as Duke Lido from Dune. Oscar Isaac from Ex Machina, the father of the robots. <laughs> uh, Shay selected Alonzo, played by Denzel Washington in Training Day. Not a great dad, but certainly a hot dad. He selected Mr. O'Brien, Brad Pitt in Tree of Life, going a little too hard in the paint with the boxing lessons <laughs> as a dinosaur mysteriously looks on. I selected Winston Duke as Gabe Wilson from Us, a wonderful father when he's not the evil version. And I selected John Cho as David Kim in searching, looking for his missing daughter. See searching uh, if you can. It's a great film. Shay, I love our picks. I love our picks too. Shay, one more time. Yes. Tell the folks about your latest book and why they should buy it. Hip hop and other things. Wherever you buy stores, it has been personally endorsed 
by Jake Gyllenhaal, Denzel Washington, Edward James That's Olmos, right. Lawrence Fishburne, right. Brad Pitt, That's right. Oscar That's Isaac, right. every dad we've talked That's about right. here, they all posted about it on their Instagram or Twitter. I think they might have deleted it already or it was like a story. You might have missed it, but it was there. I promise. It was there. They thought, yeah, they had to delete it and take it down because it was almost too much praise. People were getting, yeah, they were saying too much nice stuff. I've heard it said that it is the greatest book of all time and that the art by uh, the great Arturo Torres is the greatest art that has ever been put to a book of all time. What what a lot of people have said, like scientists, are that if enough people buy the book and open it, it will release neuro uh, whatevers into the air that will reverse- The climate change. It'll fix it. I really hope that people, if only to stop climate change and preserve <laughs> life on Earth, I hope they buy the book in large numbers, the physical version, the Kindle version. The ebook does not release the gases, the neuro stuff that, that changes yeah. the environment, but mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. physical book does. Folks, buy it wherever you buy books. Uh, Shay, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> All right, later. That's it for the Endgame, the revamped cafeteria table. Let us know if you have any uh, additions to the table. Hit us at hashtag XRV Endgame. That's XRV Endgame. Big thank you to Shea Serrano, Jason Goldman, and H for joining us today on X-Ray Vision. Please join us each week on Wednesdays for your weekly dose of the deepest dives. Next week, we'll be doing a comics corner where uh, myself and Rosie Knight will be talking about some of the comics that uh, we really like that are going on right now and maybe some recommendations. If you want to learn more about what we explore in each episode, check out our listener's guide to all things X-Ray Vision in the show notes on our website. That just took a very deep hit of spice and foresaw an increase in five-star ratings. Uh, Please add them wherever you get your podcast. Goodbye. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by me, Jason Concepcion, and Sandy Gerard. Caroline Reston and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers. And our editing and sound design is by Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Big thanks to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.